Pages of Pim Better Podcast. What's up, Voyagers? Welcome to the Voyages of Tim Vetter Podcast. This is episode number 180. Hope everybody is doing all right out there. My guest for today is Jason Green. Jason Green sang for a band called Orchid. And as you know now that we are 180 episodes in, uh, punk and hardcore was a major part of my life in my teen years and continues to be a major part of my life. And I first heard Orchid maybe when I was like 16, 17 years old. And for a kid who, you know, who was into that type of music at the time, and it's, we're talking like 2003, Bush era, things at that time felt so crazy and out of sorts. Orchid's energy and emotion and sound sort of embodied that that chaos that I felt and was a, a soundtrack to those times for me. So I've got some really fond memories of listening to them and going to shows of uh, you know, bands that sounded like them. They were really, they were within a genre, but I think really to this day, influential and groundbreaking and broke the mold. So I was you know, really, really into their stuff, uh, continue to put Orchid Records on now that I'm in my mid-ish 30s here. But Jason also played in a band called Panthers. Uh, he enlightened me in this conversation to a band called Cheeseburger, which you'll hear in just a little bit here. Um, and he's done comedy. He's done radio stuff. He has a song out on Adult Swim through the Jason and the Jerk moniker. So I'm going to have some stuff played throughout uh, the episode here. If you go to the show notes, you'll find the order of those songs and the names and bands that, that perform those songs. So if you want to go check them out and, you know, go to, to iTunes or wherever it is that you buy music nowadays. Orchid still has records and shirts like stuff, stuff like that available. We mentioned Ebullition Records. Uh, you can just put in Orchid. You can put in Jason Green into Google and you'll find all that stuff. So if you're into it, into the conversation, go buy some stuff. I know he's not in those bands anymore, but uh, continue to support the bands and the labels that you like. All right. Also, if you go to the show notes for this episode, you will find my Patreon link. You can give monthly. That's a subscription-based service. And there's some cool kickbacks like stickers and shirts and stuff from around the world. But if you can't do that and still want to support, just talk about it. Share the podcast with your friends. Let people know that they should listen to it. If you're into punk and hardcore and find this interesting, share it with your friends who are like-minded. All right, cool. This was really cool for me. Really made me feel like a like a teenager again. Uh, got to reminisce on a band I was super into, and it, it made me uh, remember a lot of shows and stuff like that from back in the day. So hope you like it too. There's going to be a couple songs that play, and then you will hear our conversation.
You're a winner. You're number one. Don't you ever forget it. You look good today, man. Go out there and show him who's boss. Thanks so much for doing this. This is, uh, it's always a, a bit weird uh, in a good way to sort of connect with people that I started listening to like a, a half a lifetime ago. So, uh, you know, I really appreciate the, the time today. Sure. Thanks for asking me. It's weird too, because the, if you look at generations and the music for generations, right? So like uh, my parents went through, like the protest era for, for Vietnam and all that protest music. And when I first started listening to, to bands like Orchid or, I mean, we could play the genre game, right? But like uh, what people now would call like Screamo or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. it, I, I turned 14 in 2000. Um, so I was 15 for 2001. First election I could vote in was uh, Bush's second, second term. And when I connected with that music, that was like, for me, my protest music, because that era, that felt like, you know, as a teenager, that felt like the ultimate tyranny, learning about the Patriot Act and and seeing people stripped of, at the time, which seemed like uh, an immeasurable stripping of freedoms. And here we are today, (laughs) uh, 19 years later, in what you know, what I think of as is a as a far worse situation. So, it's interesting to to get to talk to you under that context, if that makes sense. Yeah, I mean, for sure. Um, you know, I I'm trying to think of when Orchid started, but I was in New York. Uh, I moved to Brooklyn in 1999, and um, so I was there for 9/11, and. I saw how they used that horrible event to start to take away some freedoms. And it was acceptable to a lot of people because they were scared. And I think we are in a similar situation now uh, with the pandemic amongst all the other stuff going on that, you know, this is, and, and the protests that are happening, it's going to be an excuse to, uh, you know, take more of our freedoms and it'll be acceptable because people are afraid uh more surveillance um and it's just it's just kind of slowly chipping away um that's just the way it's it's always been it's like these feels like these stages and when there's an opening to kind of rip away a little bit more freedom than people will 
the government will do it in a second. Yeah, it's strange. Like, I'm not necessarily calling Orchid a political ban. Like, we can get into some lyric stuff, but it's sure. this happens. This, we go through generations like this. It feels like a call to, vac, to call to action almost. It feels like an awakening. It feels like the culture might be changing, and then it happens again. And everyone from the earlier generation is older now, and sort of is either acquiesced or is is tired and burnt out from it. Uh, so yeah. I, I don't know how hopeful I feel <laughs> about this current well, time. I, I think the biggest issue we have is that the way the power structure is set up is that, you know, people of privilege are the people who have access to power. Um, so even poor white folks think that they somehow have access to power as well. And the main thing that people don't want to be like white liberals in particular is uncomfortable. So these protests are all, well and good, and I, I'm glad that if there's any trend, it's about fucking with the police. That's a great trend. Um, but, you know, when it comes out on the other side, we have Joe Biden to look forward to. Right. And as soon as he gets elected, if he gets elected, these people are going to disappear like a puff of smoke. Like they, you know, they don't want to be inconvenienced. Um, they don't want to be made to feel uncomfortable. Um and they would rather live with these known injustices than make a change, I, I think. So it's dispiriting. Yeah, I think at a young age, the first time you start to realize this kind of stuff is often when people first start to get into uh, like subcultures and mm-hmm. um, if you want to call it underground music or, or, or punk or hardcore. Do you remember mm-hmm. like where you were at in life when, when you were first exposed to that kind of music? To, to punk? Yeah. Uh, I grew up all over New England, but most of my childhood was in a little town called Cheshire, Connecticut. It's like sort of near New Haven where Yale University is. Mm. It's a very parochial place. At the time I was living there was a lot of farmland. Uh, There was no punks to be seen in that town. And I had an older sister, but she was not... You know, it wasn't that classic tale of your older sibling, like giving you a Gorilla Biscuits record or whatever. She was interested in the Indigo Girls and stuff like that. And uh, so I think my entree to punk was sort of sheer luck, really. I was interested in skateboarding. um, So you'd hear punk songs and skate videos. Uh, I was a big fan of the Beastie Boys. And the Beastie Boys would be wearing like a Minor Threat t-shirt. Or Mm. I I think it's, I don't know how often it's spoken, but how big of an entree the Beastie Boys were to tons of people to really cool culture and stuff. Um, That was a window for me. And then, you know, it's one of those things like I see, I saw a quicksand video on 120 minutes on MTV. I liked it. Then I'm like, oh, he was in this band called Gorilla Biscuits. What's that? And I get that. Or I like Fugazi. Then I find out about Minor Threat. It's just like these little stages. Um, so there's not, I can't, there's not like a, there wasn't this epiphany moment. I mean, the first hardcore record I heard probably was the minor threat record because of Fugazi. Mm. Cause I was a Fugazi fan and I didn't understand it at all at first, but then I was became quickly obsessed and then, you know, and then there was no, there was no internet really. So it was a lot of like, reading magazines and going to the record store and just guessing, you know. 
Yeah, that's actually, so that's my connection to, to Orchid. When I first started really getting into music, it was just at the cusp of the internet. And so it started with like message boards and things like that. Uh, it was yeah. like maybe like the cusp of the file sharing era, right? But mm. uh, I grew up on Long Island and there was, there's a town called Center Reach. And the place escapes me now, but it was like a, I don't know, this is air quotes here, like alternative type of place, right? So you could go, it, there was like a piercing place that you could buy clothes and then you'd go downstairs and there was like a sex shop, but right in front of that was the record store. And I can yeah. remember having like 20 bucks and you've got a big decision to make because all you have is 20 bucks until, you know, your next, uh, you know, kid paycheck or whatever you were doing at the time. I was like busing tables. Yeah. And so... Um, I say that to sort of qualify that like the lens through which I'm looking at this conversation first is Orchid and I'll, I'll get to some other stuff, but, uh, I've seen you do interviews or, or there's some written interviews about chaos is me, but my real lens was through, uh, the gatefold record because mm -hmm. it's same type of situation. Like you buy a record, you look at who is thanked. And it's like, oh, they thank this band. I've heard other people talk about that band. I guess I'll buy that. And I remember like uh, a friend's older brother talking about Orkin. I was like, all right, let me check this out. Um, but it, it, to me, it's interesting because all of the bands you mentioned, and I see the band on your shirt there, uh, different sound from Orchid. So, well, yeah. Like, yeah, I mean, that's pretty easily explained because I was living in this, you know, small town. Um, I didn't have access to a ton of stuff. The scene that the hardcore scene, as I discovered it in Connecticut, which was pretty vibrant, um, every single, not every show, but I'd say 90% of the shows were booked by Jamie, the lead singer of Hatebreed. And Hatebreed was not a huge band at the time. They were like a big local stars. And the scene in Connecticut was total bonehead tough guy, hardcore, and youth crew was just starting to come back. So we had these bands, this band called Fast Break from Connecticut, yeah. a band called Cornerstone. So these, they're all kind of youth crew revival bands. And I was, of course, listening to bands like Gorilla, like basically once I discovered Gorilla Biscuits, I got all the Revelation stuff and I was obsessed with it. I was straight edge. Um, and so I was really happy to see there's new bands playing that kind of music. And by the time I got to college, I would, that's still what I was listening to. And um, then through meeting Will from Orchid, he, you know, as hardcore kids do, you'll find each other in a group. And we started chatting and he came from a different side of the hardcore scene where he was interested in grindcore and power violence and really much more noisier stuff. Um, and, you know, we still had, I was like at that point getting into like, Dead Guy and some of the Hydrahead stuff and some of them co coalesced some more mm. like noisy, weirder, hardcore for me at the time. And then he made me a mixtape and then I just, we started listening to all kinds of stuff together and that's, you know, that's how it works. Once I was finally around people who were able, had access to a bit more, a wider breadth of music, then, you know, he listened to a wider breadth of music. Like I hadn't, you know, I'd never even eaten Indian food until I got to college. Like it was, you know, I was very lucky to find anything. How much of, so uh, 
I'll say that like when I'm when I'm a 16, 17 year old and then I'm looking through lyrics, it's a little harder to decipher. But looking back on it and like looking at Gatefold, maybe I'm totally off base here. But how much of, of that is sort of like a like an anti record? Because it, it 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 seems if if I'm interpreting it correctly, like a like a disdain almost for the music scene. Yeah, well, that was our last record, and we knew it. Um, and we had toured pretty hard mm. uh, throughout the existence of the band. We would tour the U.S. like we would do tours like two or three times a year. We did Europe. And uh, we were on the road a lot. Um, and, you know, the band was always, we always did fine. And, you know, towards the end, we started having a little bit, we, we would still have shows that, you know, 10, 15 kids would come out to. But it was turning into a thing where, um, like those message boards had just begun. And I wasn't really involved in that, but that was the first kind of, where people were trying to find out personal things about you or whatever. And, um, and people were really interested in the rare vinyl and the merch more than the shows or what the bands were talking about. It felt like, and it was turning into a sort of style. It felt like, I mean, I was also just sort of over it and kind of a brat about it, but I was, um, I just felt like a style over substance kind of thing. And, and also I was accused of, being that by a lot of people and I was just kind of like what's the point of doing this because it's not like I'm making money mm. so why suffer the abuse of teenagers <laughs> I don't know <laughs> yeah I was good yeah it had it was definitely there's was, there was a lot of I was struggling with in that scene at that point yeah I understand that what um what were those early tours like and you know you you talked about the bands coming out of Connecticut you know there's all it, you know, Boston also has a lot of like uh, more traditional hardcore bands and youth crew bands and stuff like that. Like, mm -hmm. were you were you on like I don't know if you want to call them tour packages, but were were you touring with bands like that, or was it like bands no. that you had splits with? No, we. So the first tour we did was just with the demo. I don't even think we had a seven inch out yet, although we might have. Um, and well, the way the band worked was once it started. We recorded a demo and we had a show with Pig Destroyer mm. booked because Will was friends and put out records with Scott's other band, uh, Agoraphobic Nosebleed. That was our first show. The show ended and they asked us to do a split seven inch. So already we were like just kind of, it was going further than we imagined right out of the gate. And Will has always been in bands and had, I think he had toured before. Um, and I'd never done anything like that. Um, so yeah, we toured in a minivan and we were touring with, playing shows with bands that are mostly because of Will's label, which is the only thing anybody knew about us. So it was all a lot of crust punk bands and grindcore bands. But we played shows with like Burned Up Blood Dry when they first started. Um, this band called Hail Mary. It was a lot of those type of bands. And then as we went along and we had our own um, reputation, we were able to kind of, like we toured with Jerome's Dream a lot. Mm. Um, my favorite tour maybe was we did with, it was Lightning Bolt's first U.S. tour and uh, Red Scare. Um, I was dating a girl in Providence in college, so I was obsessed with Lightning Bolt, Airborne Raider, all those bands. So we, we play a lot with those kind of bands. We, we generally tried not to play with other bands that sounded like us. 
for the most part. But that's not that wasn't always doable. But that is what happens. Did so you know a lot of people will cite either the band as influential or you know Chaos as me as like a really influential record. Um, like I know you know this, uh, but at the time that you were playing that record, touring off that record, writing the music, like, did it feel like something special and something different? You know, that's such a, it's such a, I mean, the short answer is no, <laughs> but um, it, it's, it's a tough question because, you know, I'm looking at it, you know, 20 years out. Um, and I was just so happy to be in a band and to be in a band that, you know, someone will had like all this experience doing this stuff and had a label and was like taking the reins and had contacts with, you know, he like knew how to set up tours and it, so it was just really exciting. And as far as the kind of music, there was not a lot of discussion about the kind of music we were going to make. Um, will wanted to start a band and he asked me and I, before that I was playing guitar at a band and he said, no, I want you to sing, which I had not done before. And the music he and I were listening to collectively the most were these German hardcore bands. Um, There's a label called Percuro, and uh, they had a very similar style to what Orchid did. And this band called One Eyed God Prophecy from Canada. And we were obsessed with that kind of music. Union of Uranus was another one. And, we, mm. and Will basically would come to practice with a fully written song, and he would show the bass player how to play it, and then the drummer would write drum parts and I would write lyrics and then that was it. So we never discussed the style. It just, that's what came out. And obviously you can hear it evolve from the demo tape to the last record, but, um, but yeah, I don't know. It, it never, it, it didn't occur to me that it was particularly special. Um, but you have to keep in mind at that time, the, the punk scene, it, it's very much about, you're not supposed to succeed. You know what I mean? It, <laughs> if you do well, you've betrayed people in some way. So it was kind of like, the whole thing's always very humble. Um, so I never really, we played on the floor, you know, we wouldn't play on stages. There was like that whole thing where we were like, we're no better than the audience. Um, you know, lots of stuff like that. So at the time, I mean, I just was happy to be doing it, I think more than I am. Yes. I realized it was a big deal at the last show. That was, that's when I was like, oh, people like this band. That was kind of when I figured it out. I, I was there for sort of the, and, and maybe it is still a thing, I don't know, but sort of the vinyl explosion where like people were collecting variants and colors and things like that. Um, my friend Tim ran a label. I, uh, looking back on it, I don't know how the hell this happened and how anyone trusted him. Like he did a good job with it, but like, he was 18 and, and he put out the LP version of um, To Bring Our Own End by Joshua Fit for Battle and like some other bands that, you know, a lot of people liked. Um, so he was part of the sort of vinyl culture and like the vinyl boards and stuff like that. And like I'm just connecting that it, it is pretty weird that a, a counter movement becomes very capitalistic in a sense. Um, well, I think it's a natural tendency to... Uh, Listen, you know, hardcore is unfortunately majority male audience, right? And the male tendency is to collect 
to know the facts about every little thing, um, fetishize these objects. I mean, it's just like, I think, you know, we've all done it in some manifestation or another with, if it's not record collecting comics or baseball cards or whatever, it's, it gets into that zone. And we are guilty of participating in it, even though I found it so irritating at the time. But, you know, we're making these like super limited records that are crazy looking and, uh, you know, <laughs> so we're, we're, you know, we were definitely like th that label witching hour who put out, um, a comp we did and a split with encyclopedia of American traders and a skull split with Jerome's dream. I mean, Chris, he would never press more than 500 records. I have no idea. I'm sure he lost money on every single record he put out because the packaging was always so elaborate. You know, it's hard not to get obsessive about that stuff if you're already inclined to be interested in the music. And I don't fault people for that. I, I don't love seeing stuff go for a ton of money on eBay and stuff, but there's no controlling it. Well, do you get information about either physical repress sales or like, I, I don't know if, if stuff's on Spotify now, like, do, do you get information like currently about, you know, records yeah. moving? Yeah, I can't. So Kent McClard, who put out all of our, um, the LPs and the 10 inch abolition records yeah. is a great guy. And from the beginning has been, we get like quarterly reports about how the record is sold. He tells us when it's, well, not always, but he mostly tells us when it's being repressed. Um, and yeah, we get, we, you know, we get royalties from Spotify and Apple music and all that stuff. So we know some numbers, but no one, no one's making money. I mean, we, we, no, it's not, we're not making a living off of it, yeah. but we get a little bit of money a couple times a year and that's nice. Yeah. When you, uh, you went to college in, in Massachusetts, right? Yeah. So were you, at any point in the band, were you living in New York? No. Uh, I graduated from high school in, in Connecticut, and then I went to Hampshire College, which is in um, Western Mass, and that's where I met Will and our first bass player, Brad. Um, and our drummer, Jeff, was going to UMass, and I think he was recommended to us through a friend. I don't remember. I just remember the first practice we had, he said, I can't play fast. I just went. <laughs> well, that's a problem. Um, uh, and then I dropped out my third year and I went to Brooklyn. So that was in 99. Do you remember um, specific venues that you might have played in New York? Yeah. Or Orchid? Yeah. Orchid played ABC No Rio um, a few times. Um, we played for our last show in New York, we played brownies, which was, you know, when I moved to New York, my favorite venue to go to, um, I'm trying to think of where else that might be it. I think we, we didn't play, I don't want to misquote Will, but I don't think he was ever a big fan of New York city. So we, we often on our tours did not play in New York. Wow. Um, but towards the end, when I was living there, oh no, when we played, I had a loft in Dumbo when I first moved there. It was completely empty then. And I put shows on there and we played there. So we played there, Lightning Bolt played there, Black Dice, uh, I had a lot of fun shows there. Holy shit. 
Now you're you're lucky if you're paying under five thousand dollars for a space in, <laughs> in Dumbo. I, pay, I was I was paying four hundred bucks a month, and it was a tire floor of a building. Whoa! Could, I had a lot of I had a lot of roommates, and but we could have a hundred people in our living room for a show, and it wasn't full. And you could see we could see the river. We were like, yeah, it's it was crazy. Wow. Uh, lyrically again, um, like was Orchid political? Like were what, where was most of the like lyrical content coming from for you? Uh, well, so once again, coming from where I grew up, wasn't exposed to a ton of culture. Um, and I don't know if it's because of that or what, but I always was desperate to be like seen as I never wanted to look stupid. I mm. wanted to be considered People think of me as like sophisticated or whatever. So I was always reading, bringing books everywhere, trying to force culture on myself. And I got to college and then we have these actually incredibly academic, intelligent kids my age from other parts of the country. Um, And I felt really out of my depth. And I started, but I was so impressed by them. And I started taking these cultural theory classes and it was one of those schools where they expected you to have read all of Marx and you just dive right into reading like Foucault and like people who, you know, like you, you, you go a step past Marx to whoever's interpreting Marx and you're supposed to have read all of Freud. And I hadn't read any of that stuff. Hmm. So I was thrown into the deep end of the pool, but I was, I was loving it. I was like completely fascinated by it. It was a way of thinking that I'd never considered before. Um, it opened up a whole different way to kind of look at the world. And so that's what I was doing and reading when we were making those orchid records. And so I couldn't have been more obsessed with that world. And I never saw it reflected. It wasn't a conscious choice to be like, no one else is writing about this kind of stuff, but it was, that's what I was embroiled in. Like Mm. that's what I was totally you know, like I said, obsessed with. So that that's what the lyrics turned into. Um, and is it political? Yeah, for sure. Because I also see art as being political. I see life as being political. I mean, it's all political. It's all politics. Um, and yeah, so yeah, I, I think I would say, yeah, it's a political band for sure. So now knowing sort of your background and where you're from, um, what was like your, your parents and your family's reaction to, to your entry into this world and to the art that you were creating? Well, my parents are interesting <laughs> because they are politically very conservative. Um, but they've never actively dissuaded me from pursuing any of the things I wanted to pursue. Mm. They've express concern. (laughs) Um, but they've always been supportive more or less. And, um, you know, my parents did not, they still don't understand what I'm doing. Um, but they, I think now for the first time are realizing that people, it had some sort of effect on some people. So they're interested in that, but I brought home my first record the, the, the chaos is me when it was pressed and my mom listened to it 
And she just was on the verge of tears and asked what I was so angry about. (laughs) That was like the, uh, so yeah, I mean, they would come to orchid shows. They they came to see us. Really? Um, and all my subsequent bands, they would come and see, they would, they would, you know, let me know it's not their kind of music, but you know, there's no expectation that it would be. Um, but yeah, they've always been, they were, I mean, the only time they really were pissed is when I dropped out of school. Mm. They were not happy about that. Did Orchid or or even Panthers ever tour internationally? Yeah, both. Really? Where did Orchid go? What's that? Where did Orchid tour internationally? Orchid went to Europe. Um, we we never went to the UK, but we played in France, Germany. Uh, Played in Copenhagen. We played all over. Um, you know, we never made it to Spain or Italy. We never made it to. My biggest regret is not ever going to Japan. Um. So yeah, it was just Europe, and a lot of those tours at that time, you're basically touring Germany for like two weeks. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, we we did it. We I, I think we went more. I think Orchid went more than once, but. My brain is, doesn't work. There. I think we went twice. Yeah, we played in Prague. Yeah. Wow. Um, Will played in Ampere, right? Yeah, that was the band he did after working. So, uh, and, and maybe you hadn't, I just, I'm just unaware of it, but after Orchid, I mean, you both were making good music. Did you ever think like, hey, let's do it together again? We did. <laughs> we made this, we have this band called Ritual Mess that put out a seven inch and a 12 inch like a couple of years ago. Really? Um, and it sounds like a more gravity style orchid record. It's got, it's me, Will, Jeff, the bass player who played in the last couple of orchid records, um, the drummer of Ampere, uh, and this guy, James from Australia, who I've actually never met in person, plays guitar on it also. Oh. But we did a, yeah, we did a, a, a LP called uh, vile art and we have a seven inch also I, we never played shows uh we were never actually all in the same room together but we i, lo- I love that record actually i think last year maybe jerome's dream did either like a string of shows or a one-off reunion god what is that band oh man i can't remember oh gouge away i think they played with in florida um, if there was ever a point where like a label or whomever was like, Hey, you know, I can, I can put up money or whatever the arrangements for like some orchid shows, would that ever happen? No, no. I mean, no, no, <laughs> I'm not, I, I, I would say like, I love, I'm still, I love all the guys in the band. Um, uh, I love the stuff we did and that's, the main reason why I would say no, I, I, I don't, I, my view on reunions are like, it's your music. You can do whatever you want with it. Um, but as a person, as a fan, I know people think they want to see Orchid play now, but they don't really. I mean, they, they don't want to see 40 year old guys mm. drag these songs out. And I mean, the, 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 what's interesting about the band is that either you were there and you're nostalgic about it 
and you have whatever your memory is of that moment, or you weren't there and you're so curious about it. And then all this reunion does is disintegrate all of that. I don't know. I mean, there's not, I, I, there's no metric where there would be so much money that it was impossible to say no to, because it's just not a way it works in this world. It's not like they'd be like, here's $50 million, go play Coachella or something. Yeah. Even then, I don't know, but yeah, no, I don't think so. <laughs> well, we talked about sort of like the, the impact of the band. Um, I think it was a couple of years ago, there was an NPR article and they were talking about, you know, the punk music scene, I guess. And it's weird because they were like, I think they called Orchid an emotional hardcore band, which is like, all right, like, right. like what's an unemotional hardcore band? Um, yeah, true. But I mean, what do you think or, or how does that make you feel to sort of know that like in the, the textbook of punk and hardcore music, like, um, you know, Orchid's got a chapter or a few pages in there. Like what? What do you, what's the emotion when you know, when you hear somebody like talking about the legacy of the band? Mm, well, I mean, I have also been in a band that had the lowest scoring pitchfork review of all time for many years. So, what, what was that? Like, I've been, uh, the first Panthers record got like a 0. 0.7 or something. Whoa. <laughs> um, so, you know, if you buy into the praise, you buy into the criticisms, to me, it's like I have to think about how I feel about the work that I've done, and I, I feel good about it. I Listen, I, I always love the idea that if you're getting into a kind of music, like everybody listens to Minor Threat when they're getting into hardcore, you know? So the idea that everybody or a, a chunk of people will listen to an Orchid record if they're getting into Screamo or whatever, is, that's, that's cool. I like that. Um, but these lists and stuff, I mean, you know, it's people younger than me writing these lists now. And, you know, they're writing like lists about how like Papa Roach is good and like the Deftones are good and stuff. You know, the, you know, <laughs> it's so it's like one, you know, I, I'm I'm glad, but I don't really take the, those lists very seriously. OK. What was your first like um, artistic transition out of like punk and hardcore music. Cause I know I've been going through sort of like your, your life's work here in preparation for this. Um, so oh, yeah. what, what was the first thing you did outside of music? Hmm. Well, music was kind of a, a accident. You know, I was studying film and cultural theory at college and then this band started happening and I just sort of went with it. Uh, and then we started Panthers right after, even when Orchid was going on, Panthers was happening. And then that, we got signed, and then that went on for many years, and then that ended, and I kind of looked up, and I had no, like, marketable skills, and uh, <laughs> I'd just been making music for so long. But I'd always been, um, I was always a big, me and, and Jeff, the bass player, were always big comedy nerds. We grew up together, actually. We, I knew him since I was in seventh grade. And in between tours, we were studying at, at the Upright Citizens Brigade Theater. Oh. Um, but then the touring kind of took off once the band was signed, and I just didn't have time to do it. So that got put on the back burner. 
So I guess the first thing I did outside of music was stand up. Um, but that's never been a particularly serious pursuit. <laughs> it's just been a thing that I, I, I like doing, but I've always, you know, I'm, I'm, I've always written, uh, and writing and performing. I, I see it as all part of the same thing. I, I feel like I'm an, this sounds pretentious, but I, I'm an artist and this is all part of my personality. These are all facets of who I am and what I do. And, um, so I sort of see it as like a straight line. Yeah, no, I get that. And you were still doing comedy up until like the explosion of the world a couple months ago. Yeah, I had a night. I had a comedy night. It was sort of a variety show. We had we had musical guests. Like we had a lot of like Syncane performed and Nancy from LCD Sound System and a lot of fun performers. And then we would have comics and we'd always have someone try stand up for the very first time on stage and I would be on stage with them helping them along. And it was just a fun show. Um, so yeah, I was doing it. We, we, we were doing it right up until the, yeah, the pandemic basically. Yeah. What's your connection to LCD sound system? Cause you did, you did something else with them, right? Like a interviewee type of, uh, like I hit the streets type of thing. Yeah. I've done a couple things with them. Uh, I'm friends with them. I met James and Nancy many years ago. Um, and one, the, the year that they, that the tour, but that was their quote unquote last tour before breaking up, they invited me on the bus just for fun for a couple of days. And then when those couple of days were up, they wanted me to stick around. So they made up a job for me, hmm. which was making these comedic kind of behind the scenes video blogs. So I toured with them all over the U S doing that. And then I did live interviews. I did interviews that were put up on the jumbotron at Madison square garden for their last show. And then I interviewed James's brother in the audience in between sets at Madison square garden. And then this last round of touring, I was opening for them as a DJ. So I did a bunch of shows with them doing that. Ah, oh, that must've been wild. Yeah, it's a different, different kind of touring. <laughs> that For was sure. like, wasn't it like a run of almost like reunion shows that were happening? The this last round, yeah. They just got back together. Yeah, and okay, that was it. And um, and it was just like they're kind of like, oh, sorry, we're not breaking up. Was kind of the impression I got. Okay. Um, but James and I have been working on uh, multiple projects together. Um, he's a real, he's like a very good friend. Okay. That's cool. I checked out, um, you know, I know Adult Swim as like a TV channel. Um, yeah. So can, can you talk about that project and like how, like, are they, because I checked out some of the other songs that they've put out. You can kind of like scroll down the screen after I listen to yours, yeah. which was really cool. Um, can you talk about that project and like how you got connected with Adult Swim? Yeah. Um, <laughs> so briefly I was singing in this band called Cheeseburger and the guitar player is an animator and he's done a few shows for Adult Swim. One is called Super Jail. 
and another one's called Ballmasters that just has, has just aired recently. Um, and so we put out a record on Adult Swim, and I have a good friend who works there, and they do a single series every year, and he's in charge of the single series, and he asked me if I was working on music, and I'm doing the solo record, and I had music ready, and so we, we put it out, uh, that single through Adult Swim. Is all of this connected or not connected? Is all of this available in like one centralized location? Not really. <laughs> I mean, not really. And I, the, the, the thing that's interesting about it is I, I just, I feel like pockets of people know me from different things. Different worlds, yeah. So, you know, I'll know within two seconds of talking to them what it is, but, you know, I have like, there's a it's majority of it's orchid people. Then there's like the LCD people and the DFA world stuff. And then, you know, yeah. So it's like, I, I, I think depending on where you're standing, it can be confusing. Where, I, I'm standing in the middle of it and I'm confused. So Where can I find cheeseburger? It's online. I think, I mean, <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a cartoon video of me singing a song called winner. That's on, um, I think it's on, should be on Adult Swim. I think it's probably on YouTube. Uh, their people loved Cheeseburger. I was the second singer too. I mean, they were just friends of mine. And the, the main singer became a world famous fine artist, Whoa. which is, his name's Joe Bradley. And so he didn't want to do the band anymore. And then they asked me to fill it, be his backup, be the, you know, singer after him. And we did a little touring and Yeah. What, what's, um, maybe it's weird to ask this, but like, what, what does that sound like? It's like ACDC kind of, Whoa. It's like, a it's like a complete party rock band with very depressive lyrics. Wow. Yeah. Uh, what, um, like, I, I don't know if this is, a, I've asked a lot of people this, but like a, a good time for your creativity. A lot of the things you mentioned are you know, industries that are completely shut down. And so people are sort of evolving to, you know, incorporate social media platforms and the internet and stuff like that. Uh, are there projects that you're currently working on or, or anything that's you're, you're in the midst of, of putting out? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, it hasn't been great for my creativity musically. I haven't wanted to make any music during this at all. And I don't know why that is, but that's just the way, it's gone, but I have a, I have a solo LP that is basically done, um, that will hopefully see the light of day, maybe in the fall. Um, I'm working on an undisclosed comedy project with James and, uh, that's been kind of going because people are doing a lot of pre-production stuff during this time. So um, I've been working on that. I've been lucky. I mean, uh, you know, I, I haven't been affected too hard financially by what's happening, but mainly I've just been like reading books and watching movies. I haven't really been making a ton of stuff. Yeah. I was going to ask sort of about the, it's, I, I guess the term now is like consuming content. Like what, yeah. what is this, what's, What's the music? What's the art? What's the, the film that, that you find inspiring now? Now? Like new stuff? Yeah. Oh, fuck. <laughs> um, 
Well, you know, I, oh God, it's tough. I mean, I, I'm, I'm a complete, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with film. Um, I'm so, but I mostly watch, I've been watching a lot of older films during the quarantine. Um, cause it's comforting for me. Mm. Uh, a lot of like film noir and melodramas and, and stuff like that. Cause I just, I find it soothing. And there hasn't been a lot of new film released during this time. Uh, but I mean, I love Kelly Reichardt who did that first cow film just came that, that was released uh, on demand. Um, she's amazing. Um, like living filmmakers like Claire Denis and, um, uh, God, there's, there's loads books. I've read a ton, uh, but it's all older stuff. But one of my favorite living authors is this guy, Sam Lipsight, who's, um, writes really dark kind of comedic stuff. Michelle Walbeck. I love, um, music. I've been listening to a real mixed bag of stuff, but I guess for heavier things, I've been you know, like everybody else, like blood incantation and like two mold, a lot of like death metal stuff. And I love gouge away. They're, they're a really cool band. Yeah. Um, I don't listen to a ton of that. Of, I don't listen to a ton of hardcore that sounds like orchid. So, okay. Um, but you know, and I listen to a lot of, yeah, like I have an Eddie Kendricks record on my turntable right now. Um, I like listening to stuff that's that's calming, and then when I don't, it's it's pretty much all death metal. Well, I mean, <laughs> at this point, this is sort of like I'm doing Inception here, but at this point, people have heard some songs from the beginning of this episode, so I'm gonna uh, intercut a couple songs from uh, oh, okay. some some bands you've been in. Um, you know, there's people that are going to tune into this because it's you and they know of your bands and they know of your work. And there's people who are going to tune in just because they're fans of the podcast and have never heard mm -hmm. of you. So maybe we'll blow their minds. I don't know. But um, is yeah. is there anything that we can plug? You, I mean, one of those projects sounds like uh, maybe it's not ready to be shared yet, but, um, you know, websites, social medias, wherever you want, like people to kind of find your stuff. Oh, uh, well, I mean, my... My Instagram is uh, this Jay Green. Um, that's where I kind of post most of my stuff, and I also have a website that's jasongreen.org. I think <laughs> I haven't been there in a while, but that should have everything on there as well. Um, and no, I don't really have to, anything to plug. Okay. Just you know, I, I, I've got the you know, I'll have a, the record will come out later in the year. Um, yeah, yeah, I'm just just living, and I'm happy to I, I'm happy to talk about any. Orchid stuff that you want to fill in the gaps for, because I know that's. No, it's cool. I mean, uh, folks can go. Uh, people know this. They can check out the the show notes where I'll have that stuff, and and I'll link to to where people can find out more information for bands. Uh, I was thinking it was going to rain today, uh, which is kind of why we're doing this inside. But you're a neighborhood over from me, so. Maybe someday uh -huh. we either do a part two or at the very least I can uh, buy you a coffee or a beer, whatever your preference is for that. Sure. Yeah, sounds great. Cool. Hey, everyone. That's a wrap. 180 is in the books. Thank you to Jason for joining. 
really cool of him to do so. I, I love these episodes that make me really nostalgic. Uh, they really take me back. It's, it's, it's weird to get to talk to people who are, you know, in bands that I've been listening to forever, but it's also supremely cool for me that I get to, to geek out about this kind of stuff. So thanks so much to Jason and Voyagers. Of course, thank you to all of you for tuning in as always. I will catch you very soon. Got another episode following this one up real quick. And as always, folks, please take care of each other. Peace.
mother to 